All right, well, good morning. morning. It is uh, wonderful to be together this morning. I, um, I've got a lot for us this morning, so we're going to pray, but I'm going to take a moment to just uh, clarify just slightly and, and share uh, one other like encouraging announcement. But So for, the, for the, the teachers, I just wanted to make sure it was clear that we're doing the A-B rotation, meaning you'll be, if you're going to be a teacher, you'll be in one week. If you're on the A rotation, and then the following week you won't be, you'll get to be in here, and then you'll have that, it'll be the B rotation. So if you commit to the six months of being a teacher, that means that you're not going to be out of church for six months, as currently you're out for three months, which is kind of rough, uh, but you're going to be able to be in every other week. Uh, now, what that means is, we need a lot of volunteers. And to do to be a volunteer, you have to have been uh, here in Burlington as a member of the church for six months. But if you do that, uh, it's a great opportunity just to serve the kids. Many of us have done it, at, whether it's in other fellowships or um, whatnot. But it's it's a great time. It's a great opportunity, and we hope that we can get. Uh, honestly, we're going to need essentially most of the church <laughs> to step up and be a part of it, uh, because that's just the number of teachers. But it also means that you're not going to be out every week, which is nice. So if you can, pray about it, think about it. It'd be great to have the help um, with that. So, amen. That was just a little bit of clarity. Uh, Another one, I I wanted to grab a picture. I didn't see any on Facebook, but, uh, you know, David and Shay aren't here because they made a trip down to Boston. David actually just started dating yesterday. Uh, Olivia Graham, who's the uh, campus ministry intern for the metro region, uh, which is where, you know, Mike Van Aken and Scarlett are at. And so uh, they've been building a relationship. So it was just kind of neat to, to share that. It, he, he probably is not going to come in, you know, sh- shouting about it uh, just because that's who he is. But um, you can feel free to ask him about it. I'm sure he'd have a, a big smile on his face. But it's just an encouraging thing. So amen. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and pray. And then we're going to dig into some word. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we come to you uh, in the name of Jesus Christ. I mean, we come to worship and know you, Lord. We pray that your spirit be heavily uh, with us to uh, move in our hearts and in our minds that we might rejoice in who you are, Lord. I am so grateful for this time. I pray that uh, you help my mind to be clear and concise. pray that uh, where I fail to be clear, that your Holy Spirit just makes it all the more clear. Uh, to the minds of everyone hearing your word and coming to understand who you are uh, and just how how different you are from the kings and lords and rulers of this world, but how amazing you are, Jesus. Uh, Father, we are so grateful for this time to be together. Let me be an instrument of your will. I love you and give thanks to you in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to start in Luke 2 and talk about the birth of Jesus. So the title of this is the sons, plural, sons of God and the kings of kings of kings. Right. Comparing the kings. There'd be like a colon there. Subtitle comparing the kings. Long title. I would not likely buy that book. Uh, But in Luke chapter 2 is where we're starting off. You know, obviously next weekend is Christmas. Only one week away, which is so exciting. Uh, And it's just, 
it's appropriate, I feel, to talk about who Jesus, the birth of this this king, uh, into our world. But sometimes it's easy to forget how amazing Jesus is because there's so little to compare him to sometimes. Um, at least I can feel that way. But let's go ahead and pick up, and we're going to work our way a little slowly through uh, Luke 2, starting in verse 1, and we'll work our way all the way to verse 20. I'll give us a little context and information as we get going. But in verse 1, it says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius uh, was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. Now let's pause there. You know, Caesar Augustus is the emperor of Rome. He is actually the first emperor of Rome. And there is no uh, way that I can underemphasize. I mean, well, I could underemphasize. I can't overemphasize the power of this man. He is the most influential leader uh, that that the world had ever seen. The most powerful uh, man that, that was alive at that time. And so he's, we're, we're talking about him. He has this broad influence. It's, it's so great. It's so great that he could say, you need to have a census, and I want everybody to just leave where they are and go back to their hometown if they're not there. And even in the tiny little backwater town of Nazareth, they would obey. And we don't often think of Nazareth as a tiny little backwater town, but that's exactly what it was. People even made fun of them. Thomas, he's like, what good can come from Nazareth, right? And, and jokes were made about it. It's just this tiny, insignificant little town. And even there, the hand of Caesar was powerful and effective at working on people's lives. This man had a huge amount of influence. And so he declares this census saying that everyone returned to their hometown. Now, people have attacked Luke's gospel because of this census, saying, well, that's not how censuses work. They wouldn't do that. Why not just count the people where they are? And in this time, while they were, they, people were attacking uh, Luke for saying that this is how it was, that argument was being made, and sometime later, they actually found an original document in Egypt was discovered with the very same decree saying that people would need to return to their hometowns. And this was an original document that they ended up finding, but this is kind of in a short aside. But to me, that's very encouraging to see that people are attacking the gospel and then God's going, you know what, let me show you this. And, and this original document, not a copy of a document, but the original one appears of a census, similar, same census essentially, but showing up in Egypt saying the same thing, giving the same way to take that census. Does that make sense? For me, I just think that's cool. It encourages me to see uh, the validity of God's word just being verified. It's all the more it gives me greater confidence. And so uh, it just gives me confidence in Luke as well as a historian. But going back to verse 4, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, 
to Bethlehem, the town of David. Because he belonged to the house and line of David, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. So let me stop there. This is a 90-mile journey from, uh, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now, Chris and I, when she was pregnant with James, we would make, we, we flew to Europe, we'd go down to Boston, we'd do all of these things, and that was a bit of an ordeal to, to travel. When we went to Europe, Kristen was like seven and a half, almost eight months pregnant. Uh, and so we go to Europe, she's so uncomfortable. Mary is literally about to have this child, and she's on a 90-mile journey. When we don't know, you know, we often think of her traveling on like a mule or a donkey or something. We don't know for certain that that's how it happened, but I doubt she was walking. I don't know if you can imagine a 90, you know, a 90-mile trip with a pregnant lady. That would seem rough to walk that. Um, but the the idea is that this is a they're they're schlepping across this country. Uh, this 90 miles to make it to uh, to make it to Bethlehem, right? This is an arduous journey they're taking, and it's because this man named Caesar Augustus had declared that they should have a census and return there. You know, and so, and and also something to note here: their pledge. It says, this is all just context for the scripture, but what we have is it says that they are pledged to be married. Right now, that's not that's not they're not married, but they're also not engaged. This is more this is more than an engagement, because even what we know from uh, Matthew's gospel is he says that it would have actually required a divorce to separate them at this point. So this wasn't just like an engagement, but it also it says they're, they're pledged to be married. It just essentially means they're not they haven't consummated their marriage. Right. And so, when we look at this scripture, we see that, I'm just trying to paint this picture, you've got this nine-month pregnant woman traveling 90 miles to go to this place, to, to get there, to do this census, because this emperor somewhere far away had declared that it would happen, right? And what we're going to pick up again, I'm going to start back again in verse 6, but we're going to look at this. A little bit more. It says, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. It says, and there were shepherds living out in their fields nearby, keeping watch over the flock at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news and great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is, a, he is Christ, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. He will, you will find a baby wrapped in clothes, 
cloths and lying in a manger. So let's pause there. So Luke does this thing, <clears throat> and he uses this word today. Today is, is a significant thing because he's saying, today, it's, a, it's an exclamation of a transition between something that was and then something new. And Luke, through Luke and Acts, he uses this phrase, he uses this word, today, to mark a transition, right? Using it 20, day, 20 times, it's always in, in reference to something saying, there's going to be redemption whenever he uses it. He's talking about redemption. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about a separation from what was to what will now be, starting today. So this is an exclamation of something different. And what's incredible about this is that when we started in verse 1, Augustus Caesar is the most powerful man on the planet. And by the time we get to verse 6, he's not anymore. He's not anymore. Because today, something had changed. Right? The Son of God had been born. Right? And so, he uses this as... This idea of today. And so when you see it, as you read Luke and you read Acts again, consider when he uses this phrase today. Take note when he says it. But he's saying something big. It means something new. And what's incredible, you see this, uh, he paints this picture for us. Luke gives us this this idea of, he talks about the shepherds. And he's, they're, they're only seven miles away from Jerusalem where they're keeping these sheep. Probably the same field that David, King David, used to take care of his sheep in. Right? And he's, they're out there, these shepherds are in the field and they're watching their sheep. And I don't know about you, but if like the sky lit up and the glory of the Lord shone around me, and, and I mean, every time angels show up in the Bible, people are pretty much freaked out. And, and they're always like, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Um... But he's saying, these shepherds are seeing this. And these angels show up to declare the birth of Jesus, right? Now, when a son would be born in Jewish culture, not just a son, but any child, they would actually have people come and sing. They'd have minstrels show up, and and they would declare and sing praises. And if it was a son, yeesh, it's, it's like, it's a bigger deal, right? And yet, because they had to travel... They weren't going to have that. You know, because this, this king, this emperor had declared that they should go. Their lives are being interrupted and they get there and they're not going to have these minstrels. They're not going to have, you know, any, uh, any of them there to sing for them. But God is going to be sure that his son is going to be sung about, right? Okay. Now, this term, heavenly host, this word host, I'm refers to the idea of an army, to say a host. And I thought about trying to find some pictures of the like army band or the army uh, the the army choir, and I couldn't find any really good ones uh, that I felt like the resolution wasn't too poor. But the idea of like this host showing up to sing and pronounce and exclaim the birth of Jesus is an incredible thing. Being out there, but they didn't show up to Augustus in Rome. They didn't show up to, to Herod. 
right? The great. They didn't show up to the the landed gentry or the politically powerful or anybody like that. Who did they show up to? They showed up to the little shepherds out in the field. And shepherds were actually considered to be pretty dishonest people. Um, you know, they were kind of the social outcasts because they were consistently unclean. Uh, and so they were, they were kind of out there. And yet those are the ones that God shows up to. And that's, I believe that part of what God's trying to convey is, hey, you outcasts, hey, you people that are marginalized and on the edge. He says, I'm here for you. Right? I'm here for you. The, the ones who are not necessarily the highly thought of in society. Right? And personally, I'm convicted by that a little bit. You know, I do think about our church when I think about that. How, how do we reflect that in Jesus? Uh, uh, I feel like that's something, you know, we can pray about and, and talk about more. But this idea of they're showing up for to these shepherds, this huge army in the middle of the night, singing praises about Jesus, Right? And so, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Right? You know, and so we go on, and it says, When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see these things that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And so they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, who were lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told, uh, what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed what the shepherds said. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glor- glorifying and praising God for all the things they had done and seen, which were just as they had been told. So, he goes with me and painting this picture. I, I think you have this this account and, and they're showing up. And I always I, I've read this and I've been like, well, Mary treasured these things up in her heart. Like, why does it seem like she didn't talk about this stuff? Like, if angels start showing up in the heavens and people are showing up, I, I, I don't know. I feel like I have a I, I'm pretty encouraged to talk about James. Pretty excited about it. You know, I feel like I would want to. Uh, Make sure people, I mean, I try to make sure people know I think he's awesome. Um, but even more, you know, this, this woman's given uh, the Son of God, right? Uh, angels are showing up. And, and I get this impression. I always thought it was an interesting notation that Luke makes. But what to, to give a little clarity on that, I, scholars think that it's very likely. Like, how did Luke know this? He wasn't around. When this happened, how did he know this? Well, see, Mary was with, after Jesus dies, you know, Jesus is on the cross and he talks to the Apostle John and he tells Mary, he says, this is your mother, this is your son. The implication is take care of, take care of her. And so Mary would likely, uh, was traveling with John and, and spent the remainder of most of her life with the Apostle John, right? And John would eventually become the leader of the church in Ephesus. Well, if there, John is in Ephesus, Mary's likely in Ephesus. You know who else ends up in Ephesus a couple different times? Paul. You know who likes to hang out with Paul? 
Luke, right? Luke, Luke and him were buddies. They liked to travel together. And so it's very, very likely that as Luke is writing the book of Acts, right, which is how we have Acts, and I'm always like, I remember as a young Christian, I was like, Paul didn't write this. Who, who wrote this? You know, before I knew it was Luke. And I'm like, how did he know all of this? It's because he was there. Uh, but it's very likely that, and when they were in Ephesus, that Jesus, or that Mary, was there. And Luke had a chance to sit down and actually get the first-hand account of what happened from Mary. Because even Luke says, in the beginning of Luke 1, you know, he says that I have... says. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fully fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those whom were first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also for me to write an orderly account to you. You know, he's a man determined to find the details. And it's likely that Mary, he makes this notation, Mary treasured these things kept them, stored them away so that she would know it and God prepared it, right? And so anyways, we, we look at all of this and we look at how this has happened. Um, what we see is that uh, he's there and he's proclaiming this. So they've traveled across the country. They've done this. Caesar Augustus has had his hand in their lives already. And yet Jesus is born with no pomp, really. He's born says they talk about this idea of an inn, and we're going to actually talk about that in a little bit, but him being born in an inn, uh, some translations use the word guest room, uh, and, and we'll explain that in a little bit. But this idea that Jesus wasn't born in a castle, he didn't have the people singing there for him, and the angels didn't show up there either. It seems like they went out to the fields to tell other people, Right? So there's nothing really going on from what we see on this account, right? And uh, I think it's good for us to consider. But as we dig into this, I I think it's important for me. What I I thought about was the title of this was the the king or the sons of God and the kings of kings. You need something if you want to understand how great Jesus is. You got to try to have something to compare it to, right? You guys with me? Alright, so I'm gonna try I'm gonna try to go more quickly through all of this because this is a lot of information. But in this what we see is we're gonna talk about Caesar. Caesar Augustus. Now who was he? He was born Gaius Cassius Octavius, right? And born of a uh, a landed essentially like a knight, right? His his mother remarried this man. His stepfather really had no interest in him. And so what happens is, is his grandmother says, you know what, I'll take an interest in him because nobody else seems to. His grandmother's name was Julia. Well, who was Julia? Well, she was actually the sister of a guy named Julius. In fact, Julius Caesar. Right? So Julius Caesar is Octavius's great uncle. And... Julius takes a great interest in Octavius eventually. And, and what ends up happening is this obscure son of a knight out there ends up being adopted by Julius Caesar. Right? Coming from out of nowhere, essentially. And the title of this, by the way, is there, there, like those guys, 
their Lord and God. And so, what we look at in this time and in this place is this king who begins to arise. And, and what he does is he says, uh, he, he ends up becoming a senator because he's, he's adopted by Julius Caesar. He could become a senator. Once he becomes a senator, he could become a general. Once he became a general, he could have control of armies. And then he would use those armies to begin to take power. And he did a lot of different political things, and I'll try to be quick rather than give all of the crazy details. But he establishes a peace like none had ever seen before. Anybody ever heard of the Pax Romana? It's the peace of Rome. It's this 300 years of incredible peace and growth and prosperity. And it's, it's the time of Augustus when we see the real zenith, the peak of Roman power. Under this great king, the August One is what they called him. And he's, he's coming in and it's at this time, the peace of Rome, this, this time that honestly God has prepared to be the perfect time for Jesus to come. And what made it perfect? Let me give you some details because I think it's important. Under this time, they got rid of pirates. Sea travel was safe and fast, other than the elements. Road travel was good. They got rid of the robbers, right? Right? The, the Jewish people actually were under, they were, they were like a sanctuary religion where most other people, when they came in, they would have to worship the Greek gods. But the Jews didn't have to do that. They were allowed to actually worship their God. And Christians eventually actually got, came in under that same rule, which was very cool. But under that, what ends up happening is the Jews that had spread out through all of the Roman world began to build their synagogues and could freely teach in their synagogues. And so God placed all of these pre-prepared locations of safe haven where people could eventually, Christians could eventually go to preach. Right? God had prepared it. This was the perfect time to spread and share the word. And so in all of this, what we see is at this point in the Roman time period that Jesus would come, that God would set something up. Who's got the clicker? Let me grab that really fast. I meant to do that. But uh, it's at this point, and Daniel had actually prophesied about this. Uh, Daniel, what you see in Daniel chapter 2, he talks about this concept. You, he makes this prophecy saying, there's the head of gold, which was Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the chest of arms and silver, which is the Medes and the Persians, the belly and thighs of bronze, which is the Greeks, Alexander the Great. Following him would be the Romans, which were the legs of iron and then the feet of iron mixed with clay. And he says that in the time of this final people, that a tiny little rock cut out, not by the hands of men, but by God, would come and strike in that time period. And it's this prophecy saying that it would be in this kingdom that God would establish this little kingdom that would grow to conquer and take over the entire world. And it's at this time, God's perfect time to say, I'm going to do it there and then. And so with that, what we look at is we see that God has set this up perfectly for Jesus. He set it up perfectly in this time. And Caesar, in all of his pomp and power, was nothing but a pawn in the hands of God. 
right? Sorry, I'm trying to decide what to cut out of here. But I think it's, in, it's important for us to understand Caesar's power and Caesar's influence, uh, Augustus's power and influence, because this man, you want to talk about a guy who had an ego, right? An ego was big. He actually changed his own name. So I told you it was Gaius Octavius. He added, uh, what was it? He adds early on, he adopts Julius Caesar. So he becomes Gaius Julius Caesar Octavius. Try to teach your kid that name to spell when he's little. Um, But he becomes the sole ruler of Rome. He's elected to be the emperor by the Senate. First time they'd ever done that. That's an ego boost right there. Right? He ends up fighting this battle between the two other claimants to the throne. He gets rid of Mark Anthony, uh, who ends up, you know, he's the one who married Cleopatra. They had this big uh, sea battle, all the stuff. They made a movie about it. It's been a long time. But uh, anyways, he, uh, he ends up taking over, solidifying his power, becoming the sole supreme ruler of Rome. And in part of his actions... Uh, to strengthen his political ties to his former soldiers. See, they, he deified Julius Caesar. They made him a god. They declared Julius Caesar a descendant of Venus, that, that he was a god. And then what he said was, well, that's my father. So then he gives himself this name as well. He becomes, uh, what was it? It's Gaius Julius, and he drops, yeah, Gaius Julius Divius Filius. Meaning, Divius Filius is the son of God. He declares himself the son of God. And even on their coins, he put this, Divius Filius, on his coins, Caesar the Son of God. So that everybody could walk around and know who He was. Right? That He's the Son of God. As I said, ego. But He goes on and even gives Him... He changes another name again where He gives Himself the name... He drops Gaius Julius and replaces it with Imperator. Which means the victor. So it's the title that they would give their generals when they would win a battle. You'd be the Imperator. He just gave himself that name. That's my name. Right? Imperator Divifilius. The victorious, victorious Son of God. And it would be in the time of the Son of God that the true Son of God would come to be born. Right? Later, the Senate would give him the name Augustus which is the name that we often refer to him throughout history, Augustus Caesar. But he is this incredibly powerful man, reaching as far as the tiny little backwater city of Nazareth. Right? And so what we see is roads built, peace brought, incredible time for the Roman people, administration,